So we have begun this series on Ephesians, and as I said, we're doing this a little bit backwards from our normal life group series in the sense that you have homework and you are meeting in your groups and watching a video prior to and doing the work ahead of time on the text prior to me preaching on it. Usually I preach and then you guys do the work on it. This one's the other way around. We saw last week in week zero just the city of Ephesus and the Apostle Paul and what he was doing there, the kind of city it was and and what we were doing. And now we have the letter that is written, the letter to the Ephesians is written about eight years later. Paul has now moved on. He's gotten captured, imprisoned. He's in Rome. He's writing a letter now to the people that he planted a church with eight years earlier. And uh, he wants to encourage them. And so when you get this uh, introductory to this letter, these first 14 verses that we're looking at today and that you've already looked at, Um, you understand that these are a people that he's writing to that he understands are feeling very beleaguered by the culture and the city that they live in, right? This is a city that had rioted against them. It's got the Temple of Artemis in it. It's filled with uh, gambling and prostitution and and witchcraft and spiritualism. And Paul knows that this is a church that's beleaguered and um, by the culture on the outside pressing in on them. And at the same time, also beleaguered by factions on the inside trying to mislead them, as we'll see later on in Ephesians. And so what he does here and how he starts these first 14 verses is important. This first few paragraphs of his letter is because he wants to start out explaining to them and reminding the people in Ephesus how all the aspects of God's nature are at work with them. And so what we have here and almost everyone should be familiar with the text because you did your homework, I'm certain. And we're going to go over it a couple times anyway, so I'll be quick in this. But what we have in this 14 verses is you have this incredible picture of the Trinity, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and what all aspects of God in unity, three in one, are doing for us as Christians. And so that's how we're going to look at it. We're looking at the Father's will, Christ's work, and the Spirit's seal, or guarantee. And that's how we'll break it down. So first of all, very quickly, we'll look at God the Father's will, His purpose, and His plan. And it's important when you open up the text, and we'll just put the text up there, and I'll try and highlight as I go along, um, the, the pronouns of God and who it is. And we'll just do the first part here. So it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before him, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption in himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for in the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, so as you follow along here, I just want you to see these pronouns. It's talking about God the Father. This is God's plan, God's blessing in Christ that he would do things according to the purpose of his will, that he would make known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. So Christ has been given to us by the Father, says for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. This is the Father taking the initiative. 
right? It's the mystery of the Father's will according to the Father's purpose that it is made known to us. The Father's plan is in the fullness of time, not yet, to unite all things in Him. This is God the Father is doing all these things. That's the next slide, actually. If you keep going, I've summarized them. Um, All of these things. So grace and peace came from the Father, and Christ has been given, and the mystery of the Father's wills has been shown. So as Paul is writing here, what I want you to see is that in the Godhead, in the Trinity, the Father is the one taking the initiative. It's the Father's love, it's the Father's Son, it's the Father's blessing, it's the Father's will, it's the Father's purpose, it's the Father's plan. And I emphasize this simply to draw attention to the Trinity at work here in this all-encompassing effort, and this all-encompassing effort is set on us, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have this effort that's all coming towards us, but it's also to highlight the love and compassion and the will of the Father. Because here's the thing, you can have in your mind, and a lot of people have this, Christians and non-Christians, okay? People who know just a little bit about the Bible and people who know a lot about the Bible even. People have in their mind sometimes the idea that the God of the Old Testament, God the Father, is grouchy and violent and mean. Until Jesus came along and then all of a sudden softened up the old man and Jesus is loving and merciful and kind, right? And we get this misunderstanding about the Father and the Son and we get confused about the fact that Jesus is all love and and God is somehow angry and mean. And if you have that idea, you've got a dangerous and heretical idea in your head. It's a horrific lie that the Father is angry and the Son is gentle. It's the Father's love. It's the Father's blessing. It's the Father's purpose. It's the Father's will. It's the Father's plan that any of this happened, that the Son came. It's His Son. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. The Father is not mean and angry and grouchy. The Father has purpose since before the foundation of the world for our salvation. It's the Father who has initiated all of that. And now in the text, you see this also talks about Jesus all the way through as well as it's talking about the Father because the Father is doing all of these things. He's enacting his plan in Christ according to the plan and purpose of the Father who has. And so the next thing we're going to look at here is we're going to look at all of the things that we are in Christ that Paul is encouraging these Christians in Ephesus about. He says, here's all the things that you are in Christ or through Christ. So the key phrase is in Christ or in him or in the beloved. And following along that phrase, we can pick out eight things that Paul says Christ has accomplished for us and that have been granted to us in Christ. And I'll highlight them as we go through here. So in Christ, I'm going to have to go back because I did this differently. No, I'll just do it this way. So in Christ, I might have to try and read it up there. We have every spiritual blessing, verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There it is. And then secondly, we have been chosen to be holy and blameless. He chose us, in verse 4, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we're chosen in Christ. Verse 5, we've been adopted. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Fourthly, we have redemption in verse 7, the first part. It says, in him, that's Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood. And then verse 7b, it says, in him, Jesus, we have redemption. And then the forgiveness of our trespasses, so we have forgiveness. And then sixthly, we have knowledge of the mystery that God has revealed, which is to unite all things in verse 9. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth 
in Christ. Right? And then seventh, we've obtained an inheritance in verse 11. In him, that's Jesus again, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse 13 and 14, the eighth thing, we've also been sealed. It says, in him, that's again Jesus, you also were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So there are eight things there that Jesus has done for us right now. So right now, these Christians, Paul is saying, right now, Jesus has already done these eight things for you. And Jesus has done a lot more than this. Jesus has done more than just eight things. There's actually another future one there that Jesus will do if you caught it. In verse 10, it says that the uniting of all things that is to come will also be in him or in Christ. Okay, so there's a uniting of all things that's going to happen in Christ. That hasn't happened yet. But these other eight things, they've all happened. They've all happened in Christ. So we'll just take these eight and I'll just put them all up there. There's all eight of them that we have in Christ. And I'm going to talk very succinctly about these eight things. And I I wish I could spend eight weeks on this. Uh, but I can't. And uh, what, what needs to land on us from this text, because it's even the way that Paul wrote it, just by packing all of this into the first paragraph of his letter, I think what the Apostle Paul and what the Holy Spirit wants to have happen here is he wants all eight of these things to just land on us with a weight. It would be great to slow down and take our time and unpack each one of them and we could do that. But the effect that this is meant to have in the letter is Paul just wants all of this to just land on the people and say, look at all the things, how comprehensive what Christ has done in God's plan is for you. So let's just look at them really quickly here. Just the completeness and totality and comprehensiveness of the work that Jesus has accomplished. It says in verse 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's an odd phrase, right? When you read that, what does it mean? And there's much debate about what it could mean to say every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why doesn't Paul just say every spiritual blessing? What does, he, what does he mean when he says in the heavenly places? You could just take it as we have every blessing that comes to us with Christ from heaven. You could read it that way, and that would not be wrong. That's certainly true, and it may be safest just to leave it at that. But Paul seems to be hinting at something more specific than that with his wording here. What we do know is that the heavenly places are certainly full of blessing, right? The heavenly places are full of blessing. And that those heavenly blessings are certainly great blessings that are superior in every way to any non-heavenly blessing. Let's just keep it simple. Heaven is full of blessing, and all of those blessings are greater than any non-heavenly blessing. And what Paul is saying is that in Christ, we have every one of those superior heavenly blessings, right? So that's a good thing. None of them are withheld from us. And I'm satisfied with that. If Paul's just saying all these heavenly blessings which are better than any other kind of blessing are all yours in Christ, that's a good thing. I like that sentence. Let's take that one. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are ours in Christ when we're in Christ. Then he says that we've been chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless. So because of Christ, we're accepted by God as holy and blameless. Now here's the important thing. It'll be important later in the message as well. We are not holy and blameless. Is anybody here holy and blameless? Raise your hand. No hands going up. We know that we are not holy and blameless, right? None of us actually are in ourselves Nobody wants to make that claim. But before the foundation of the world, God chose to declare us holy and blameless in Christ. And this is justification. It's by God's purpose and will, not by our works that we're holy. 
It's not by our accomplishment that we're holy. It's because of Christ's accomplishment. So in Christ, we are considered holy and blameless before God. In verse 5, it says that we've been adopted. Look, Jesus is a good brother to have. Right? Like, just stop and think about this. We have been adopted. Think of all the things that that means. Having God as a father is a good family connection. When a person is adopted, they are legally and relationally transplanted from an old family into a new one. And when we bring an adopted child into a new family, they begin to be instructed and guided in the ways of the new family. And there might have been a way we did things in our old family, but there's a new way that we do things in our new family. And all of these things hold true for us as Christians. We are called out of the old family of the world into the family of Christ, and we begin to be taught new ways of family behavior and new things about what this family believes and how we act and how we speak and how we respond and how this family loves us. And at the same time, as we come out of that old family into a new family and start to learn all these new things about being in this family, that adopted child at the same time receive all the benefits of being part of that family. And we covered this in much more depth in Galatians. If you want to understand more about that, you can go back and listen to that message on Galatians. But, but they get all the benefits of being in that family. It's incredible when you think about it. And Paul just like rattles these things off one after another. Then he says in verse 7 that we have redemption. And Paul associates our redemption with the blood that is shed by Jesus. And redemption is an action of regaining possession of something in exchange for payment. So something had to be paid to redeem possession of something, right? When you redeem a coupon, you take in the coupon and you say, I'm redeeming this for the discount or the toaster or whatever it is that the coupon is for. That's redemption. I'm going to redeem it. And so a price was paid in order to regain possession. But redemption is also the process of restoring what was lost or diminished into its rightful state, right? If something is broken or something is is not the way it should be, we say, it's kind of poetic language, but we say they, we redeemed it, we've restored it, right? Somebody has redeemed themselves if they correct a mistake or if they, you know, uh, apologize and fix a, a relationship that's broken, you can say, well, they redeemed themselves or they redeemed that relationship. And so Paul here is saying that this redemption has taken place by the, by the blood that is shed by Jesus. And so that, that death that set us free, that purchased us, is the same death that gives us this power to uh, redeem or restore the brokenness and to repair what was broken. And that we're redeemed in the sense that Jesus begins to heal and put back what was what we've destroyed through our lives, right? And, and those of us who are believers know the redemption that's taken place in our lives. But I've got to keep going because there's, there's better stuff at the end. So then we keep going. Then we have forgiveness of sins. We've been redeemed and forgiven. And here's the thing that we need to understand about biblical sin. When it says that we receive forgiveness of sins... And Paul addresses both of these things in terms of biblical sin and biblical sins. He first says that we're not only holy and blameless, that we're not holy and blameless, meaning we are sinful, right? So we are sinful, but God makes us holy and blameless when we shouldn't be because we are sinful. Biblical sin is a state that all mankind suffers from. And this is what you can get wrong in terms of biblical sin. People sin because they're sinners. They're not sinners because they sin. You follow me? So you are a sinner, and that's why you commit sins. It's not like you are holy and blameless, and then you commit sins and become a sinner. 
the state of mankind is that we need redemption, that we need forgiveness of being sinful people. But in addition to the fact that we are by nature sinners or sinful, we also commit sins. And so God has to deal with both of those things. You have things you've actually done that need forgiveness. And so God comes along and he says, in Christ, I'm going to call you holy and blameless, and I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to pay for you and buy you back, and I'm going to restore you, and then I'm going to forgive that sinful nature of yours, and I'm going to forgive the sins that you commit. I'm going to do that too. And because the fullness of time has not happened yet, I'm going to have to keep offering forgiveness for your sins because you will sometimes keep sinning. But Jesus has obtained that, that forgiveness for you, for that sin. That's, what, that's all that Paul is saying in here. You've been counted holy and blameless, you've been redeemed, and you've got forgiveness. God says, I'm going to do all of it for you. And my plan is going to play out that all things are going to be united in me in the fullness of time, but because the fullness of time hasn't happened yet, that forgiveness is going to keep coming from Jesus. You can ask for forgiveness and receive it from Christ. But that's not enough. He keeps going. He says, also in Christ we have knowledge of the mystery. What is that mystery? The mystery is to unite all things under Christ. And so in Jesus, God has made us aware of his big plan. And this is something you have to understand again when you're transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel and even the prophets had some idea of what God was up to, but they didn't understand it all. Okay? And Peter, when he's writing his letter, he says that the prophets spoke and wrote into things that even they didn't fully understand. So the prophets would be writing and speaking scripture, and they would be speaking and writing things from God, from the Holy Spirit, that they didn't fully understand. So they would say things or write things, and then they would go back and look at what they said and what they wrote and try to understand it, because they, they didn't fully understand what God was doing. That's what Peter says in his letters. And and so Israel thought that God was mainly for them. Israel felt that mainly if anybody wanted to come to God, they would come to Israel. They would come to Mount Zion. They would come to Judaism. They would come to the people of Israel. And the Jews would let them in. God had a plan in the Old Testament to proselytize people. You could be entered into the family of God. You could enter into Israel from outside of ethnic Judaism. But you could enter into it. But the Jews are pretty sure that, that God mostly liked them. And, and he liked their nation above all other nations. And, and they were also pretty certain that amongst the nation of Israel, God really liked the really religious ones of them. That's what they mainly understood. That God just wanted them to be really religious and really Jewish. But in Jesus, when Jesus comes along and he's eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and Gentiles, the mystery of God's plan is being made known that he intends to unify all people, all things even, under Christ. And there's lots more we could go into there too. But this is knowledge that we have now in Christ and we should be behaving as a church according to the knowledge that we have from Christ. Nothing should give the church more encouragement but to know that the future of all creation is secure in God's plan. That God has a plan and the mystery of that plan has been revealed to us in Christ and that plan is to unify all things in Christ. Right? And, and Paul says, Christians in Ephesus, listen, you have this knowledge in Christ. God has spoken in various times in various ways through the prophets and now he speaks through his son Christ Jesus, as in Hebrews. So Jesus has shown us things that are a mystery to those that have come before and we have that knowledge. We have that knowledge. 
But that's not all. We've also obtained an inheritance. Isn't it crazy how Paul just piles it up? Right? He says we've inherited, obtained an inheritance in verse 11. You remember how I said it was good to be adopted into Jesus' family? Yeah. I mean, it's good also to be in line for the same inheritance as our new brother Jesus is in line for. I mean, some of you think that maybe it would be neat to be Phoebe or Jennifer Gates, right? Or, or Howard or Peter Buffett, right? That'd be great. They stand in line to inherit some serious swag from their fathers, right? But we have obtained an inheritance of Jesus, the Son of God. And so when all the world, this, this is God's inheritance. You remember back in the Old Testament, Genesis 11, when all the world got together, all the nations of the world that were there at the time, they got together there in the Middle East and they were going to build the greatest tower and the greatest monument of their collective wealth and their collective power in Genesis 11. And as the world was there building this incredible monument of all of their wealth and all of the power of the focused energy of the, of the nations at that time, it says God came down to see what we were up to. God came down. He, he stooped down so that he could see the collective wealth and industry of the entire world at the time. And so you might think that there are great inheritances out there in the world. We, in Christ, have the inheritance set aside for us of God. We have the God of the universe's inheritance, which supersedes any other possible inheritance. And Paul says, you've obtained that inheritance in Christ as well. And then he says, you've been sealed in verses 13 and 14, Jesus, he says, we've been sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus gives us the seal of the Holy Spirit. Without Jesus, no Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, no seal or guarantee, which I'm going to move on to next. So this is what Jesus, the Son, has done and is doing for us. Okay, All of these things are ours in Christ when we believe in him. So the Father has the plan The Father has the purpose. The Father's will is bent on us. The Father's love is bent on us. The Son accomplishes all of these things in Christ, in the Beloved, in Him. All of these things. The work of Jesus has accomplished all of this. That's what He's done. But the Holy Spirit, you see here, is not left out either. He's going to get in on the plan as well. Jesus does a lot more than these eight things, and the Holy Spirit does a lot more than these two things, being a seal and guarantee, but that's what Paul highlights here. So the Father's done this, Jesus has done this, the Holy Spirit is doing this. The Holy Spirit is our seal that guarantees the inheritance that we've not yet fully received. There is no resurrection yet, there is no heaven yet, there is no perfection yet, there is no glorification yet, yet all of those things are guaranteed in a Christian today. And this is another thing that we struggle with. Sometimes we struggle with the uncertainty of whether God the Father is somehow angry at us, He's not. He loves us. This is all his plan. Okay. The other thing we struggle with is, can we be sure that we're going to see the Father? Can we be sure that Christ has brought us to him? Can we be sure that we have the inheritance and the knowledge and the righteousness and the forgiveness and the redemption? Can we be sure of that? And we get uncertain about that. And we get confused as Christians. But the Holy Spirit is a seal and a guarantee that says, as it says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Let me put it to you this way. A Christian alive on this earth is no less certain of heaven than a believer who is already there. So let that sink in. My, my father has 
has passed on and he's already in heaven. I am no less certain of heaven as I stand here today than my father is in the presence of Christ right now. I'll be there because I have faith in Jesus Christ and the seal of the Holy Spirit. You can know that you are guaranteed to see Christ and to see heaven and to have all of this inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a seal that guarantees us that was given by Christ. There are banks that guarantee deposits. You can have government bonds that guarantee a return on your principal, but there is no bank and there is no government that can offer an absolute guarantee because there's no bank that is not incapable of failing and there's no government incapable of being bankrupt. Ask some of the people in Greece how they feel about their safety deposits in the bank, right? how their government bonds are working out. But we have a guarantee that is secured by God and sealed by His Spirit. This will happen. God will finish the good work that He's begun. Those whom the Father gives to Jesus, He cannot lose. John 10.28 says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of My Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. As an aside, if someone ever tries to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, I don't know what Bible they're reading, right? Jesus was very clear that he and the Father were one and put the Spirit there too. And what we see in Ephesians here is the Trinity at work. God's plans and God's purposes and God's will before the foundation of the world that has accomplished Jesus' works by his life, death, and resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit seals and guarantees. Stamped it, double-locked it, no erases, this is going to happen. Okay? This is how Paul starts out the first paragraph of his letter to the Ephesians, because he knows these beleaguered Christians need to understand the truth of what they have in Christ. Which brings us to the critical question, right? This is the punchline of the whole thing for this morning. J.D. Greer in his video talked about some really good stuff about election and being chosen and what all of that stuff means, but this is the critical question for us today. Who has all these things in Christ I mean, all these things are incredible. That little review I did, it's fantastic. So who exactly has them? Who is Paul confidently speaking to that God has chosen, that Christ has accomplished, that the Holy Spirit has sealed? Who is it that has every spiritual blessing, that's been forgiven, has redemption, knows the mystery, has the inheritance, is guaranteed to receive it? Well, he tells us who. Ephesians 1.13 is the key text here. He says, And you also were included. Who's included? Paul says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal. When you heard and believed. That's who Paul's talking to. When you have heard the gospel and you have believed in the gospel, then you are included in this. This is who receives all of this. And so we can deduct from this sentence that there are three kinds of people. Who are the three kinds? Well, there's people who have not heard at all. As Paul says, people who have heard and believed. So there's some people who have not heard at all. There's people who have heard and don't believe. And then there's the people that Paul is talking about who have all these things, who have both heard and believed. There's three kinds of people. Haven't heard, 
heard but didn't believe, and heard and believed. Everybody in the world falls into those three categories. Okay? And those that are included are those who hear and believe. So who's here today at Lakeside in those three categories? Is it possible that there is someone here who has never heard the good news of the gospel in their life? I don't think so, but let's cover all three just to make sure. There's lots of ways that we could talk about the gospel. Okay? There's like dozens of ways that the Bible explains the gospel, but here's just one. We'll run through Romans. Romans 3.23, if you haven't heard the gospel. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means none of us measure up. We don't even measure up to ourselves. We lie awake at night at 3 o'clock in the morning, beating ourselves up with regret over our own failures of our own standards. If we don't measure up to our own standards, we definitely don't measure up to God's. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God has a gift to give us. Jesus has already accomplished everything. Why would he do this? Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we hated God, Christ came and died. When you rejected God, Jesus' death was still there for you. Even while we hated God, God loved us and sent Christ to die for us. Then he says in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you, do you trust God and his promise that he raised Jesus from the dead for your salvation? And will you say it? Will you say, this is where my hope lies? My hope doesn't lay where it used to lay. It lays in Christ Jesus. I'm following him and I'm trusting in God and his promise. And then Romans 5.1 finishes it off. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you hear and believe, then this is for you. You have peace with God and all those other things that we have through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Okay, so you've heard the gospel now. You've heard the good news. And you've probably heard it at least 10 different ways. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believed in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. God loved the world. He sent his Son. You believe in him, you won't perish. It's the gospel in a sentence. 1 Corinthians 15.3-4, For what I have received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That's the gospel. I'm sure you've heard the gospel a whole bunch of biblical ways and a whole bunch of other ways as well. How many times do you need to hear it? Do you believe? So now you're in the second category. You've heard the gospel. You know that God loves you. You know that he died for you even while you were wicked. You know that it's a free gift. You don't have to do anything. You are bankrupt. You have nothing to offer God except to put trust in him. So if you're in that second category where you've heard but not believed, there's only one question you should care about. What is stopping you from believing? What's stopping you from trusting? What is the barrier? If you've sat here and heard the gospel and heard the love of the Father and the love of Christ and seen the power of the Holy Spirit at work in lives around this church, and you still don't trust what is stopping you, what's preventing it. Because whatever that is, that is the barrier between you and eternal life. That is the barrier between you and joy that you can't imagine. 
That is the barrier between you and the redemption and the healing that God wants to bring into your life. And it'll be different for different people. Is it because you think you have to give up a bunch of fun activities that you don't want to give up? Right? I have to change my lifestyle if I believe, so I don't want to. Well, you might have to give up some stuff. But God will replace those things that you have put your joy in with things that are far better and far more joyful and far more healthy for you. Just ask a few people you know here if they would rather go back to their old life. Just ask any believer here if they would rather go back. I've never met anyone who's put their trust in God and followed Christ and said, "Ah, I'd rather go back. Not after all the healing and redemption and joy and peace and knowledge. Don't miss out on that one. The knowledge of the mystery is important because there's stuff on the other side of Christ that you understand that you don't understand on this side of Christ. So what's stopping you? Is it just because you think you have to give up some fun activities? Is it because you'll have to face some horrible things that you've done in the past or that you are doing? Are you going to have to confront some sins? Yeah, you will. I'm not going to lie to you. You will have to confront those things, and it won't start out easy. You will condemn yourself for your sins, but God does not want to condemn you. God wants to forgive you. Your sin is not a problem to God. God has solved that problem on the cross. Okay? He wants to forgive you. As fast as you lay down that old life and you confess that sin, just as fast as you do that, Jesus will take it on himself. He will take on your punishment. He will take on your pain. He will take on your shame. And he will give you his righteousness. And he will keep doing that day after day for the rest of your life. So don't be afraid to confess and face what you've done or are doing. Maybe you don't believe because it all just seems too mystical and too fantastic. Is it really so hard to believe that a life-bearing world is unique, literally one of a kind as ours in a universe, so finely tuned as ours, requires dozens of natural constants to be balanced with perfection and precision to even exist? Is it so hard to believe that it's created? I'm not going to get into that argument today. But there are millions and millions of scientists who are Christians. And they know a lot more than I do. And they could get past it. They can get you past it. Is it. Are you struggling to trust and believe? Is it? Is it because it seems so contrary to the culture? Is it because we are being strictly told and controlled what we're allowed to say and what we're allowed not to say and what we're supposed to believe and what we're not supposed to believe? We're being told every single day what to post on Facebook or what to tweet or what not to tweet or we will destroy your career if you tweet the wrong thing or reuse the wrong hashtag, right? Are you afraid to believe because it just seems so contrary to culture? And if anyone uses the wrong phrase or tweets the wrong opinion or believes the wrong thing, they're just, you're just going to be buried in an avalanche of cultural hate. Is that what's holding you back? Listen, you don't have to breathe the air that the culture is putting out. You're allowed to think for yourself. You're allowed to believe still. We're not quite in 1984. Right? We don't have the thought police yet. But man, when Orwell wrote those books, he thought big government was going to be the thought police. He thought government was going to have cameras and government was going to control what we said. What he couldn't imagine is that we would do it to ourselves. We would be pointing the cameras at ourselves. And we would be controlling what people were allowed to think. It was beyond Orwell's imagination that we would do it to ourselves, that it wouldn't come from big government. 
So don't be afraid of the culture. Don't let that stop you from believing. I don't know what's stopping you from believing that there is a good God, that he knows you, that he loves you, that he's proved his love to you by sending his son to die while you still hated him. And he tells you that you are known and loved, that he doesn't need anything from you, that he's already done everything for you. Just trust in him. And if you don't have that faith yet, then ask him for that faith. You can ask him for that too because he'll give it to you. So whatever is stopping you from believing, identify that one thing and ask God to show you how to overcome it. Because whatever it is that's stopping you from believing the gospel is holding you back from the richness of life in Christ and the inheritance of eternal joy. And I don't want anybody to be held back from that. So you've heard the gospel. I hope you believe. But there's a message here. What if you have heard and you do believe, which I hope is most of the people I'm talking to. So some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, 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 Paul, I get it. This is great, very stirring. But I've heard and I believe. So what's in this for me? Well, all of those things that Paul just encouraged you with, for one thing, right, those eight things, let's be encouraged by that. But what's the message in verse 13 specifically? What is our responsibility then for us as believers? And let's remind ourselves of verse 13. It says, and you also were included, this is who's included, in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Notice here that these people to whom Paul is speaking heard the message of truth. They heard it. Don't let that pass you by. Where did they hear it from? They heard it from someone who knew it, obviously, and spoke it, or they wouldn't be able to hear it. Remember in Romans 10, It says that if you confess with your mouth, blah, 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 blah. It's no coincidence that just four verses later, after saying that you must confess and believe, in Romans 10, 14, it says, and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? So Ephesians 1, 13 has a message for those of us in the third category who have heard and who believe. We have to speak it, or other people won't hear it to be able to believe it. We have to speak the good news of redemption and forgiveness. Forgiveness is the removal of debt that is owed. It's the payment that Christ has made. And redemption is the restoring what is broken, repairing what is damaged. We have a message of forgiveness and redemption. And we have this great news that Jesus paid a debt we can't afford. And we have this great news that he will begin to restore what we have spent our lives breaking. Right In fancy theological language that we are not only justified, but what we are also made righteous. We have this great news of this great exchange that takes place. Not only are we declared not guilty in the courtroom of God, we're not only declared not guilty and set free, but we are also, as we're leaving the courtroom, understand this, we are handed an award. We get an Oscar, we get a Grammy, we get a Pulitzer, we get a Nobel Prize, we get a Stanley Cup, we get a Vince Lombardi trophy, a Purple Heart, a Medal of Honor, and a Bill Gates-sized inheritance. That's That's the exchange, because not only are we forgiven and set free of our guilt, we inherit and have the righteousness and holiness of Christ Jesus. It's both. It's the exchange. We are justified and made righteous. So we leave the courthouse and they throw us a parade. It's great to be set free from our guilt. What a burden that we are released from when we are set free from our guilt. 
That's good enough news. Most of us just go, thank you, Jesus, for setting me free from my guilt. But then we turn around, and he's like piling the medals on us. And people are praising us. And God says, you are holy and blameless. And you're righteous. And it's like, this is too much. It is too much. Jesus gets our sin, and we get his righteousness and his blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours. And that's good news. That's the best news you could ever give anybody. So share it, because they have to hear so they can believe. How are people going to hear that unless we speak it? And so Christian and I anticipate I'm speaking mainly to Christians this morning. This text is not only a powerful encouragement to us in those eight things that we have in Christ and Paul intended for the people in Ephesus to be encouraged that they have those eight things and hundreds of other things in Christ, but it's also a powerful reminder to us of the good news of the gospel that we have to offer the world. Because all of those things can be had by anyone who hears and believes. And let me rephrase this. It's not just a powerful reminder to us of the good news that we have to offer the world. Because when I say the world, it makes it sound like it's someone else's job and they're just anonymous out there. The good news of Ephesians 1 to 14, the good news that we have to offer is what you have to offer a person, a family member, a friend, a co-worker who you know and love. And they are already loved and chosen by God. They just need to hear it and believe it so they know it. Share this good news, not with the world, but with the person you're thinking about right now. That's the encouragement here. They have to hear so they can believe. We have this incredible treasure in jars of clay. We've got to speak it and get it out there. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for these eight things that Christ has done for us, your son. We thank you for the seal and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit that this is done. It is eternal. It will not change. Nothing can snatch us out of this situation, this plan that you've put us in. Father, thank you for your love that initiated all of this. What incredible good news in just one paragraph. Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged by it. I pray that we would be so encouraged that we would speak it so that others can hear and believe and be included in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.